Welcome to What on Earth, an AI group podcast unpacking the key issues of the minerals, energy and supply chain sections of the transitioning economy. Hello, I'm James Scotland, the General Manager of Supply Chain Resilience for the Australian Industry Group, and welcome to What on Earth. Thank you for joining us to discuss all things facing business owners and operators as Australia transitions to a post-carbon, net-zero carbon emissions future. In this podcast, we look at the world issues from an industry and a business perspective, and we try to provide you with strategic and business insights into them. We ask a simple but important question, what on earth is going on? The changes are big and complex, and change is equally important for business survival. We here on What on Earth believe the first step is to understand what on earth is going on and to get our strategic thinking in place. This podcast unpacks the big issues and tries to find clarity in the chaos of change from a business perspective. Joining me each episode to discuss and dissect the big issues are two learned colleagues and good friends. Tenet Reid is the Head of Environment and Energy for Australian Industry Group and a respected international voice on these issues. Hello, Tenet. G'day, James. And Paul Hudson, Principal Consultant of Paul Hudson Advisory and CEO of Scaling Green Hydrogen CRC. Paul is well known to many of you as a business and industry commentator with a passion for innovation and business improvements. Hello, Paul. Hi, James. Good to be with you and Tenant again. It's always good to chat with you guys. Hey, look, today, guys, I thought we could talk about the kind of vexing issue of electric vehicles in Australia, particularly electric vehicles in the commercial part of Australia. I was in Sydney recently at a supply chain conference, and a group of people were sitting around discussing uh, EVs, and essentially they were dismissing them as just a media and a greeny hype. They were surprised when I said that I believed that they would be missing out on business if they don't start thinking about um non-carbon-based transport, particularly in their own business, because of the need to get to net zero. But also, I strongly argued that they are a commercial advantage to to businesses. Basically, EVs are a better option in many ways. Let's see if I'm right on that and discuss that shortly. But first, we should catch up. What have you been up to, Tenant? Oh, you know, it's pretty quiet in the world of climate and energy. <laughs> so largely, uh, I've been in the hammock. Uh, having having a nap. No, um, there's been a lot going on, and I'd highlight two things that have been particularly interesting. Uh, one is that uh, recently I participated in the launch of the Australian Industry Energy Transitions Initiatives Phase Three report on pathways for decarbonising key sectors of Australian industry. This has uh, been a three-year research effort with some of AI Group's uh, biggest members um, directly involved in in leading and validating the work. Uh, And it's looking at what are the, not just the technical, but the economic pathways and the infrastructure requirements, the skills and so on for iron and steel, alumina and aluminium, uh, LNG and basic chemicals to decarbonise in Australia. And the, the work you know, in some ways, it is hopeful and reassuring. You know, we can get to more than ninety percent emissions reductions in these some of the hardest to abate activities, or what are commonly seen as as such. But also, it's you know a pretty uh, 
bracing view of the scale of what is needed, uh, a heck of a lot of new infrastructure, uh, an investable climate for business to uh, to drive that. It's it's a lot to do, but that I heartily recommend um, that report as well worth a look. And of course, the other thing is that there's a lot of discussion of the safeguard mechanism, which is a uh, an important policy that depending on how it's how it goes in the parliament, um, some of the, the details of how it's implemented could provide a substantial support for uh, and, and driver of that decarbonisation investment. Uh, but there's a lot of argument along the way. So that, that one has been keeping me very busy indeed. What is it in summary or in sort of broad overview? The safeguard mechanism sets baselines for allowed emissions at major Australian industrial resources and transport facilities. The government's changes would bring those allowed limits down over time while allowing some flexibility so that businesses which have got limited options within their boundaries in any one year can take advantage of abatement opportunities across the whole of the safeguard facilities and in the wider economy. So it's got the potential to be a a fairly efficient form of carbon trading, uh, emissions pricing, but one that's quite different to those that Australia has experimented with in the past. It's a complex beast and competitiveness of trade-exposed industry is a key thing to be managed in the design. We're particularly interested in the potential that the government has flagged for a carbon border adjustment mechanism, which is a whole topic of its own, to play a longer-term role in avoiding the risk of carbon leakage. But in in essence, it is a, a, a tightening driver every year for lower emissions across the industrial piece of the Australian economy. Yeah, it's encouraging to hear you say uh, we're, we're making sure that we remain competitive around the world as we transition. I think a lot of business people, a lot of listeners would be interested in that. So you might pick that up shortly. But also encouraging to hear you say you're quite, you're quite positive whilst lying in your hammock. <laughs> Indeed. What about you, Paul? What have you been up to? You've been crazy busy. I see you've been bouncing all over the country. It's been a very intense period, James, as we uh, as we approach the stage one deadline for our cooperative research centre bid uh, for scaling green hydrogen. So I've been in uh, global conversations. I'd say from sun up to sundown, but often it's over it's over those hours as well, and weekends and conferences and all sorts of things, talking to people about not just green hydrogen but uh, decarbonisation and all the aspects that will make up green hydrogen, such as uh, electricity sector and water and land and social license and technology um, and major users across land, air and sea and chemicals and all sorts of things. So it's been a, a very intense period, but it's been a really uh, interesting time in terms of capturing all those insights of what big, in, big business, what governments are doing, uh, what small companies have got available, uh, what the enablers are doing and, and how we might be able to uh, to put together uh, a green hydrogen value chain. So it's a very intense period. It's only uh, hasn't got a lot of time to run in this phase, uh, but that's been taking up pretty much uh, all of my time apart from a bit of time to eat and sleep. <laughs> uh, you need to do those too, I guess. I guess, if you have to. 
I've been involved in talking about supply chain sustainability. And one of the things that's come up, I, I wouldn't mind asking you, um, is this idea of biofuels. Nescafe or Nestle uh, in Spain have a, a coffee production factory. Uh, they have 40,000 tonnes of spent coffee beans every year, and they're using 80% of that to fuel the factory. Uh, it's a biofuel. It's called um, Nescafe, a, a, you know, a product of Nestle in Gympie, Queensland, is also using uh, spent coffee beans as a source of biofuels. How common is this going to be in the future? I think it's a really big common, I think it'll, it'll have to become common. Uh, we'll be looking at all resources as resources, regardless of whether they are, uh, I guess, virgin resources or whether they are, they've been recycled the first time, the second time, the third time, et cetera. Um, I, there, there will be the, the energy and chemical future will be very diverse uh, and it will require all of those kind of reconsiderations, I guess, of this sort of linear path that we had from digging something up or producing something, using it, and then throwing it away. And I think that uh, we're moving into a much more of a circular economy. So it will become much more commonplace. I think that's right. But I would also say that a lot, most of the opportunity for biofuels, bioenergy of different sorts is quite situational. It is, do you have a particular waste stream at a facility already, whether it's uh, your coffee factory or nearby farm or a, um, a landfill or otherwise? Do you have a handy waste stream there that is relatively easy to gather up and process into a different useful form? Uh, and, and then there's opportunity. But... Uh, we're not necessarily going to have those opportunities everywhere or uh, they won't necessarily be so uh, generic and standardised that we can assume bioenergy, biomass, biogas, bioplastics, whatever, will be a, a large share of how you solve um, either um, overall materials needs or energy needs or um, or climate change. There's only so much sustainably producible biomass to go around, and uh, so we, we we will have to prioritise what are the most valuable uses for that to go to. Particularly once we get beyond just making use of the waste streams that we've got and thinking about can we grow more bioenergy crops? Uh, can we? Um, Make use of marginal land uh, for um, for bioenergy purposes. The cost increment of that stuff will be higher than um, finding a, a better use for stuff that's currently being dumped. And again, what are going to be the best uses for for those things? So, bio stuff is great. Uh, it's just situational. Is the problem uh, technology and efficiency? I remember years ago when I was in Northern Territory, there was a weed, I can't think of the name of it, pretty common weed, that was overtaking Kakadu National Park. It was a, you know, a human-introduced in, in plant that, that became a weed, and there was thousands of acres of it. And so the NT government was looking at ripping all this stuff up and, and concentrating it into bricks for, for fuel. 
but they just couldn't make the numbers work. Is is that the problem? We can't get the numbers right, Paul. Um, I, th- I think so. There's also a whole bunch of interesting things. It, it reminds me of about probably about 15 years ago, maybe longer. Um, I was working with a project proponent who was taking, and it might be prickly acacia you're talking about as the weed, uh, which is quite commonplace, but it's a weed of national significance. And so there's things you can and can't do. And it might have changed over the over the, uh, the those years, but um, I remember they were wanting to use that. Uh, they were actually going to take that off of farms uh, so they were going to actually make the farms more productive and they were going to do that for free and they were going to turn it into ethanol and into electricity. And uh, I remember sitting in a room with about 12 government departments where basically everyone was saying, no, you couldn't do this because you couldn't move the weed. Um, uh, you couldn't uh, benefit from it because it was a weed of national significance. And therefore, they had a solution to actually eliminate um, a, 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 a a weed that there was that was uh, that was reducing agricultural productivity. Uh, the farmers would have been pleased, um, but you couldn't transport it. Uh, you couldn't commercially benefit from it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And in the end, the project fell apart. So I think you. It's not just sometimes the technology and the efficiency of these things. It's actually how do you how do you make sure that you don't have things tucked away in regulation or or practices that are actually counterproductive to actually achieving uh, a really positive outcome. And another aspect of that is uh, when we were having uh, a lot of debate, uh, what, uh, 14 years ago now about expanding the large-scale renewable energy target, um, there were some pretty entrenched different views about whether uh, bioenergy electricity generation using wood waste from native forests could be counted as um, as renewable or not. Uh, and a lot of people on, on one side of things were worried that this would create an incentive to cut down forests. Um, and people on, on the other side uh, worried that we'd be passing up an opportunity for um, making better use of, of material that we're, we're gathering anyway or that's going to rot um, otherwise. And there's just, um, they're not straightforward arguments. Uh, nothing straightforward in the transition to a new energy, is it? Uh, but it's an interesting, interesting question, interesting opportunities. Um, we need to see the world differently, which brings us to electric vehicles. I was talking on our sister podcast, Fly Circles, to uh, another friend of mine, formerly of the Northern Territory, when I was there, Michael Kulgareff, who's now the CEO of Roads Australia. And he was recently back from um, the, the, you know, whatever it's called, the, the motor show in, in Michigan, you know, the big worldwide motor show where they have all the latest, greatest motor vehicles. And he reported that most of them are electric vehicles. So the, the motor vehicle industry is moving over to electric vehicles. And yet, as I said in that in the intro, I'm hearing conversations of people who are saying, this is just a fad or it's a media thing. It won't come to Australia. There's over 54 million, probably more, electric vehicles in the world. Uh, 60% uh, of the electric vehicles are in China, but they are dominant in, in Europe. One in four Britons say that they're going to buy an electric vehicle next time around. And there seems to be strong consumer uh, need for electric vehicles in Australia, but they're not here and there is a lot of anxiety around them. 
So I want to frame it. Where are we with electric vehicles and, and where are we in, with electric vehicles in Australia? I'll do a really high-level framing, um, which I think is this whole mobility sector is an interesting one. We, when we head straight for things like EVs and we sort of suggest that uh, that's better than internal combustion engines or we talk about fuel cell electric vehicles or we talk about um, – I think we, we have to go multiple levels up and actually say mobility. Okay, so what, what are we going to do in mobility decarbonisation? And there's a whole range of things. Avoiding trips is one thing, right? So we're seeing that uh, this, this, uh, uh, this podcast, we're not all uh, sitting in the same office. We haven't flown or driven or anything else. We're doing this uh, online, right? That's one way. Uh, the other way is if it's small trips, there's things such as scooters. Uh, there's other ways of doing that. There's carpooling. Uh, car sharing, a whole range of things that can be done to actually do that. And then as you go up, you've got various fuel options uh, that that we've talked about already with biofuels, but into other options as well. So I think um, it's a, and then you go electric vehicles is part of that. But I think if we kind of go, everyone that's got an internal combustion engine now is just going to get an EV um, and travel the same distance they are now. I think we've missed the the real issue there around electric vehicles and decarbonisation. So I think there's behavioural and business model approaches to this that need to be considered as well. And then EVs is going to be part of that solution. Um, but it's not, it's not just a case of replacing all our internal combustion engine vehicles with EVs and we're going to save, save the world. Yeah, I think that's right. The, the, the full spectrum of options to um, of, a, of a, whole, a whole strategy to address transport is is very important, and of course, there's a lot more to transport than than the roads uh, and um, you know, uh, long distance maritime and aviation are a big deal. Uh, trains matter. Lots of things matter. But I, I think that what has been happening with EVs, the reason why uh, they are you know the coming thing, or not even the coming thing. They're here, uh, and uh, the investment plans from the auto sector are heavily, heavily uh, trending towards EVs. Government policies around the world are encouraging, or mandating, or assuming uh, the, the dominance of EVs among light vehicles. Increasingly, the reason why all that is the case is a is a couple of things. One is that internal combustion engine vehicles, while they're you know terrific in all kinds of ways, they they have been an amazing boon on balance, despite all the side effects that that they come with. They are fantastically inefficient in their use of energy. A, a huge share of the energy that goes into them uh, is lost as heat. Uh, whether that's uh, through the engine or uh, through the brakes or, or otherwise, uh, and uh, also that 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 fuel is highly emissions intensive when when even when used efficiently, uh, and what electric vehicles can do is uh, operate much much more efficiently, lose vastly less of the energy that is put into them. Uh, both because electric motors are more efficient than internal combustion engines, but because uh, they can use regenerative braking uh, to recover a lot of uh, the the energy that they use in um, in ordinary driving. 
and then if the source of the energy is uh, is zero emissions, they're extremely clean. But uh, even if the source of the electricity is not that clean, they're so much more efficient than internal combustion engine vehicles that they typically come out better. So um, batteries have been getting much cheaper, somewhat better, uh, and they they have hit the point where uh, the the cost addition from batteries plus the performance improvements from uh, electric mobility are just very attractive and increasingly attractive uh, in a lot, not all, but a lot of use cases. I think that's the point, isn't it? Um, when you think of it in a, in a different frame than we have for many years, the internal combustion engine is a 100-year-old technology. It is basically... <clears throat> that is fundamental. You can't argue with this. It is 6,000 um, very, very blunt force explosions a, a minute, uh, throwing steel up and down to drive, to drive a, a steel crankshaft, which is quite complicated in itself, through some very complicated gears where there's a lot, a lot of energy use, a loss through a differential to 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 tyres. Is it basically my? Uh, we've talked about my my beautiful BMW before. It's basically a really dumb machine from 100 years ago that's got $100,000 worth of electronics on it to make it better. Uh, the, the EV is a different thing altogether. It is not like that. It is not a dumb machine. And I heard it described it, it, to sort of help people understand how to rethink the electric vehicle. Imagine that, unlike what Paul said, imagine everyone still drove cars like they do now, but they're all electric vehicles. You could have... 30 to 50,000 cars a day sitting at the Pentagon, which is what they've got now, all of those 50,000 batteries are plugged in and the Pentagon's pulling the, the energy out of the battery and, and the car says, I typically need about 4% to get home, so leave 4% or leave 10% in my, in my battery car, uh, but take it all, all the rest out to, de- to generate. And then if you're sitting in your office and suddenly have to go and pick up the kids or something and need a bit more than normal, you just dial in and say, I need another 12% worth of, of energy. It's a whole different way. It's an ecosystem of smartness rather than blunt force explosion. Is that fair? I think it's fair. Uh, I think that version takes, Probably won't happen. <laughs> well, it takes a lot of doing. Um, like the, the, we need to ensure that we've got the infrastructure of two-way charges. Uh, we've got um, electricity markets that uh, – are uh, simple enough for uh, individuals to engage with in these kind of transactions and to get uh, a payment that is both uh, equal to the or, or commensurate with the benefit they're providing for the grid and big enough f- to motivate participating in that way. It's sort of, it takes some doing, but yeah, the, the rewards are very attractive because if there's one thing that is more valuable than anything else in a, the super high renewable energy electricity grid that we are heading towards, it is flexibility. And some forms of flexibility you have to pay a lot of money for. Uh, if you're going to build a, a massive pumped hydro facility from scratch, that's a lot of capital to tie up. Uh, if you can take a bunch of assets that we're all very used to being very underutilized. Like most people uh, spend most of their time not driving their car. Uh, If you can get extra value from something that you've got lying around anyway, 
know, that's that's pretty attractive. So, and it's it, it's lucky that it is attractive because because realizing that full potential will um, take a lot of effort. Well, I think that's the point, of, and Paul made that, that point before, that we probably won't all own cars like we have in the past. Uh, and there won't be 60,000 cars at the Pentagon because people will arrive in uh, micro-mobility scooters or, or electric jackpats or who knows, they won't be parking cars out the front because we've got a, a lot of different options when we get to electric. Paul, were you going to say something? Yeah, look, I mean, I think that uh, the, the fact that a lot of our mobility at the moment is sitting idle um, is, is just a really big waste of resources. I mean, that's what the Uber model was, was built on, was that people will have uh, uh, cars sitting around and they may, may be able to pick up an hour or two work or they may be able to work full time or something doing that. But I remember seeing, I don't know where it came from, but I remember seeing at one point that even taxis, which is all about mobility uh, as a service, um, it's something like 13% of their time they are actually, is when they're on a job, they're actually being paid to take someone around. That's 87%. I mean, it's huge inefficiency in our mobility sector at the moment. Um, and I think, uh, I think the Victorian government did some work through uh, the Centre for New Energy Technologies a while ago around looking at particularly autonomous vehicles. And actually, if you went to a different model, how much uh, you might require. And I think it was something like 9% of the infrastructure or something. I, you might know, Tenant, uh, what the figures were, but it was because uh, autonomous might mean that you've got your car that takes you to work in the morning, it drops you off, and then it goes and does a whole bunch of other things during the day, including parcel delivery and, and other things. And then it comes and picks you back up at another time and take and goes home, plugs into the grid and helps you cook your dinner for, uh, because you're, you're drawing the battery that, you know, where it was idle or something, it was, uh, uh, it was picking up some electrons during the day as well uh, when the sun was shining. So uh, some of this does sound like science fiction, but um, it's those business models and the management systems, I think, that are going to be the real game changers, I suspect, coupled with the tech and then the consumer and, and behavior changes. Have we got the infrastructure to handle? If, if we start going to, to electric vehicles, have we got the infrastructure? I think there's a few things that have come to mind. The, the shopping centers that I deal with say that it is very expensive to put charges into shopping centers, and they're hesitant to do that. It's is cost prohibitive, so it needs government support. And what about you know this range anxiety type issue that that keeps coming up? Uh, and the third part, of course, and, and I'll maybe ask this next question: is this idea of have we got enough electricity to do heating, energy, and and, and mobility? Well, so the um, the transition to electric mobility requires like a, a lot of things to make it work. If we think on the energy side of it. The overall uh, energy requirement is not as big as you might think. Uh, so I did some numbers a while back uh, and came to the conclusion that if every registered vehicle in Australia, light vehicle uh, and, and light commercial vehicle, was an EV tomorrow, annual electricity demand would go up by something like 15%, which is not nothing. Um, that's that's a lot of uh, generation required, but it's it's something that over the course of the next couple of decades we can certainly manage. But the other thing that is needed is the capacity, the instantaneous capacity to meet demand, uh, and that really how much 
uh, capacity we need to add really, really depends on when people are charging, how coordinated their charging is. Because if everybody is uh, still driving an individual vehicle and they're all coming home from work between 5 and 6 p.m. and they're all uh, plugging in to charge at 6 p.m. when the sun's going down and everybody's turning on their other appliances, the system will collapse. Like the well, when, we have smart, when we have smart charging like we do for our phones where, where you know, it'll do a small small suck until 11 p.m. and then a big suck between 11 and 1 or something, I don't So if we do that, if we, if we do do smart charging, good coordination, the extra load on the grid does not need to be much of a challenge at all. So it's, yeah. it's all in will we do the smarts? And the smarts is partly a technology problem it's partly a uh, consumer education and awareness and, and um, culture problem, and it is partly a market design uh, issue. Um, do, you, do you pay uh, a higher price for your electricity use between uh, 4 and 7 p.m. than you do at other times? Do you have a special rate for your, 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 your car charging that encourages you to uh, be um, using that capacity at the times of least strain on the grid. Um, there's a lot to be done there, but it's it's very doable, and we're going to have to get on with it. Yeah, I think. Um, sorry, I was just going to say, I think it's really uh, interesting around uh, the the sort of consumer side of things. I think we're, we're going to really have to have artificial intelligence and systems that are doing it for people. If people have to. Uh, people will, will charge when they want to charge, right? Um, but you're going to have to have something behind, as you say, with battery management on your mobile phones, uh, your smartphones now, uh, that's taking that out of individual decisions. Because if we have individual decisions driving it, um, we're going to have suboptimal results. Um, it's a bit like uh, when uh, smart meters came in in houses, um, you know, uh, the geeks were really good at kind of, you know, working out when they were going to do things. But it's much better... Uh, for broad uh, usage to actually have someone doing that. Not everyone wants to be an energy trader in their house. Uh, they, they just want to be able to flick the switch and do things when they want to do them. So it's much better if that's taken out of people's hands and, and done by a system behind the scenes which actually pr uh, predicts and learns their behavior and what they might need. Maybe even uh, combines with their calendar, for example, knowing where they're going to go and how far it's going to be and which... Uh, charges are on the way and how much they're going to need and actually does that for them, I think, is going to be uh, really important. I think if it's reliant on uh, changing consumer behaviour at scale, uh, it's going to be very, very difficult and choppy transition. The, uh, the F-150 Lightning, the big, the, the big uh, Ford utility vehicle that's much loved in America, but the Lightning is the electric version of it, the feedback from that is that it is a way better vehicle than the old F100, which everyone everyone loved. It was, you know, the big yank tank for two reasons. One, the batteries are in the middle of the of the car rather than at the front, so oversteer and, uh, you know, the awfully light back is no longer a factor. They handle better, both off-road for fun on the weekends and at work during, during rain periods. But secondly, there's this thing called the frunk, the front trunk, uh, where they have battery power stations. So all the traders have got their tools plugged in as they're driving from job to job. 
uh, it's a much smarter vehicle than just the uh, the old you know six thousand dumb explosions um, a minute. It's a whole new way of thinking, isn't it? It's just staggering. Uh, we won't move on. The the other issue, of course, is is price. There's the sticker price, uh, but also the price of extracting critical minerals for batteries and then having batteries wear out quickly. Let's address that. Let's start with road tax and, and sticker prices. Uh, you're in Victoria, tenant, so you know about road taxes. Some parts of the world, Norway in one, has given heavily discounts to get everyone over to electric vehicles. Yes. But that causes a problem because they're not using petrol and petrol is what pays for the roads or petrol taxes is what pays for the roads. Yeah, so uh, there's been concerns expressed by state treasurers uh, across Australia to some degree or another that uh, the the base for for funding um, the road system will be undermined uh, over time as people switch from internal combustion engine paying uh, fuel excise to uh, to electric. And Victoria has been first uh, out of the blocks with a, a distance-based charge for road use, which currently applies only to battery electric and hybrid electric vehicles. Uh, and I think it applies to hydrogen too, but there's, there's only a handful of those. Uh, and it's not very popular with the people who've got the EVs. Uh, they and, and the people who are selling the EVs, they are all arguing some version of, well, you're trying to encourage us to do this. Why are you, why are you taxing us for it? But it, we do have to fund the road system over time. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the timing of, of this, this tax is, is pretty debatable. In the long term, we just we need sustainable financial arrangements. Now, um, you know, getting people to email a photo of their odometer on their um, electric vehicle to the um, state revenue office does not strike me as a particularly efficient or forward-leaning system and you'd want to get to a more dynamic and universal um, road charging system, uh, which is also pricing for congestion and probably vehicle weight uh, to some degree as well. Um, and, you know, you, you don't have to think very long before realising that that is controversial in all kinds of ways. Um, but we, we probably are going to need to go there because, um, yes, the, the tax system and the, the funding of roads is more complicated than just fuel excise is 100% hypothecated for, for roads, but we, we are going to have a change in our national and state level tax and, and spending arrangements, and we might as well make the best of that. Absolutely. Um, Any thoughts, Paul? Well, I was just going to say, I mean, I think it's, and it's obviously broader than just EVs and road taxes because... Uh, state governments particularly um, uh, get a lot of money from oil and gas and coal royalties. I mean, yes, there are subsidies going the other way and um, you can go into depth on that. But uh, in places like Queensland and New South Wales, um, uh, coal royalties, for example, um, are a big part of the, of the government expenditure. And that not just funds roads, but it funds things like hospitals and schools and other things as well. So in terms of moving to renewable electricity and moving to things like green hydrogen, there does need to be a discussion around in that fossil fuel debate, how do we keep 
public uh, assets and public uh, revenue sources, which will actually fund. It's our shared. It's our shared value, right? Um, uh, in in that, and and some of that still needs quite a bit of work, I think. And road tax is is a part of that discussion, and it's part of the debate, and it probably needs to be done in a more holistic way as well. Um, there are thoughts potentially that you look at uh, changing uh, the taxing for internal combustion engines now. Uh, put a road tax on them, uh, for example, to start with. So it's the same for all vehicles, and then maybe uh, change that uh, a little bit, and maybe even uh, increase the, the 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 excise stuff a little bit over time, or something. If you're looking to incentivise people away, um, there are other, I think, ways of doing it which might be more acceptable, and per- perhaps tenants got some even better ideas than those ones. Well, I think like road uh, pricing has been done elsewhere. Uh, there's a lot of uh, other places to learn from, and uh, let's let's get on with it. I mean, there's a lot of reforms that that we need, but but this is one that is probably quite important uh, in a more holistic way for managing a whole lot of transport challenges that we've got, uh, including congestion. Um, we're not going to eliminate congestion, but we could deal with it and and make better use of uh, public transport and public transport more financially sustainable through uh, a more comprehensive approach to road pricing. So clearly I'm looking for an area that's even more consensus-based and, and happy uh, than climate policy to get into <laughs> and uh, arguments about roads have got to be that that happy place. What I am hearing is that um, EVs, the, the whole, all, the, all the concerns about EVs are, are reasonable, but they are being considered and, and addressed and uh, the concerns are real. It's just that uh, it's not, we, we can't assume that everyone's just ignoring it. No, there's plenty of effort going into trying to think through these challenges at the government and also an industry level. So just to finish off, simple question, can we get to net zero without electric vehicles? I think uh, I think we could theoretically do it without battery electric vehicles because fuel cell electric vehicles using uh, primarily uh, hydrogen uh, are a thing that we could do. They they look much less economically attractive at, at present than battery electric. Battery electric is probably going to dominate in reality, but if all the batteries went into a wormhole tomorrow, yeah, I reckon we could probably make it work with. With fuel cells, and Paul, I suspect I don't think the wormholes coming. Uh, well, Europe assumes that they can't. By the way, Europe assumes they need battery electric vehicles to get to net zero. I would, I would argue. But Paul, yeah, look, I would, I would suspect they're going to be a big part of the uh, of the solution set that we're going to need to get to net zero. Um, uh, I don't think electric vehicles are going to be going anywhere. I, I think they're only going to be increasing as as a share of mobility. Um, so uh, I think there will be applications for fuel cells. Um, there are people looking at other different combustion options. Um, some of that has got a long way to go. Um, but, you know, uh, back to my comment around uh, the holistic picture of mobility is actually, you know, avoidance, uh, mass transit, car sharing, you know, kind of a whole range of options as well as all the different types of fuels. and. As uh, as Tenon was saying, uh, regionally, uh, it'll be situational specific as well. There'll be 
There'll be kind of some waste biomass kind of options in some places. There'll be other areas where you've got direct electrification um, and and smart management of that. So you're using it when the uh, when uh, some of that energy, as is happening at the moment, might be curtailed and may even be wasted. Um, so uh, so I think it's going to be horses for courses, uh, but not horses. <laughs> Good line. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. Great place to finish. I'm hearing, um, you know, see this differently. If you're a business person, have a look at this differently from yes, uh, yes, I like EVs, no, I don't like EVs type of discussion. Think of micro-mobility coming. Think of uh, the, the way that the taxes and the change is going to happen. Think of your net zero and see how it all can fit together. I have a feeling sometimes we should call this podcast uh, wait and see or watch this space because we often come up with this answer. Uh, but it's true, isn't it? We're, we're working through these issues. Is a transition. Yeah. Bit of great chat. Catch up next time. We'll uh, maybe uh, pick up this, the safety mechanism or, or uh, border adjustments, uh, but we'll see. We'll see you in a month. Thanks, guys. Looking forward to it. Thanks a lot, James. Thanks, Helen. Talk soon.